Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Christina Martin, and today we will be chatting with members from the ASHP section of Inpatient Care Practitioners Compounding Section Advisory Group on compounding conundrums. Each speaker will reflect on a recent challenge they have faced, briefly describe the challenge, and how they addressed it. We aim to share innovative approaches to problems faced by many of our pharmacy peers, specifically those involved with or overseeing compounded sterile preparations. Our first speaker is Angela Chen. Angela is a regulatory compliance pharmacist with Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and her compounding conundrum is around providing consistent procedural training while staying socially distant. Angela, can you briefly describe this conundrum and the solutions that your team identified? Yeah, thank you for that, Christina. So today, what I want to talk about is our clean and training program here at Dana-Farber and the challenges we faced with COVID and other factors specific to us. And to give some context for you guys, Dana-Farber has one main infusion site within Boston and six satellites that are spread across Massachusetts and Rhode Island, all of which have their own clean rooms that compound style preparation. And we have been in our joint commission survey window and identified a need for our core sterile compounding practices to be retrained with our staff because they had kind of started to slip into bad habits and were forgetting what we originally taught them. And this was particularly concerning because we were also told that we were going to have a pharmacist amongst our surveyors to check out the clean rooms. And so for our old training program, it had been kind of a a one-on-one hands-on program where the trainer would introduce the trainee to standard procedures, the best practices in the clean room. But with the recent staffing shortages, we didn't really have the bandwidth to run this program anymore. And on top of that, COVID really kind of limited our capabilities of in-person training. And so this caused problems for us, even with new employees, which I'm sure all of you have faced with recent staff turnovers. So I was brainstorming and thinking, how can I reach every single person and every single satellite, but provide consistent and engaging training from afar? And so for standardized trainings and procedures, what I'm most familiar with that institutions do is developing step-by-step SOPs and preparing like online learning modules that contain self-paced reading. But from my own experiences, taking the time to read while staffing is really difficult. And so it often turns out to be an afterthought for a lot of people. And so what I wanted to do as a regulatory compliance specialist is to try to reduce this friction as much as possible so we can encourage that compliance and training. So for myself, I grew up with websites like YouTube. So I was really biased uh, and felt like for busy staff, video format was a much better choice uh, than writing SOPs, expecting staff to read or go through a PowerPoint with still pictures. So I developed a list of topics that I felt like needed to be covered, like hand washing, donning PPE, cleaning the hood, aseptic technique. And each week for around a month and a half, I would film one of our staff completing a standardized procedure like hand washing technique. Then I would edit the video into a training video. Afterwards, I would then host live training sessions via Zoom for all of our staff to call into so that they could watch the video, but it also gave them a forum to ask any immediate questions or concerns they had after watching. 
We then also wrapped up these videos to become online training modules that we assigned to all the staff, and it was accompanied by a knowledge quiz assessment. And with this program, we saw massive success. Our metrics for auditing staff compliance of these procedures increased dramatically, and staff have been telling me they now feel more confident that they're doing the right thing. And the added benefit of this is that we could also provide standardized training of these core concepts to any new hires without being tied to a single consistent trainer for every new uh, onboard, onboarding trainee we have. So with this, we achieved standardized training that allowed us to maintain social distancing that we could use at every single one of our sites. Uh, and this is a story that I wanted to share with ASHP because I think video communication is really underutilized uh, and can be instrumental in everyone's training program. Thanks, Angela, for reflecting on your recent conundrum and how you approached it. And I agree leveraging technology, adding videos, and then the piece about the consistency while maintaining compliance and ensuring that the integrity of the work that you do is not compromised in that. And perhaps then an opportunity to expand and involve others in the future, whether that be learners or uh, new staff members as well. All right, so let's shift gears. Our second speaker with us is Joanna Robinson, who is an inpatient operations manager at the University of Kansas Health System, and her compounding conundrum is on maintaining safety and regulatory compliance with hazardous compounding during supply shortages of personal protective equipment, also known as PPE. So Joanna, can you briefly describe this conundrum and the solutions that your team has identified? So I'd first like to pull the audience, reflect silently to yourself, have I experienced, have I or my team experienced any supply chain shortages throughout the last two and a half years? I am seeing unanimous yeses here. So today I'm going to talk through hazardous compounding during our supply shortages of PPE. So we at the University of Kansas Health System identified several supply chain interruptions throughout the pandemic, leading us to think differently about how we use our PPE. So we decided to kickstart a work group with representation from all of our pharmacy sterile compounding sites to really focus in on the effort. We created an Excel spreadsheet of here's all of our PPE items and then went out and did observations. How are we using this? How often are we using it? With the knowledge of the space, we quickly came to a daily and weekly utilization of each of those PPE items. And then the other thing that we noticed as we went to do observations is there's several factors that would increase or decrease utilization. So for example, if you have certification happening, you might use more bunny suits than gowns, for example, or if you have a trainee, you might be using more gloves because of technique and training pieces. Then we looked at, okay, let's think about all of our state regulations. Let's look to USP. Let's put all of the expectations on the table and make sure we understand the minimum standards for PPE and hazardous compounding. So some of the questions we asked during this assessment were, what are the characteristics of this piece of PPE? that are important. So gloves, for example, we know that they need to be ASTM chemo rated. We know that they need to be sterile. And so a non-sterile, non-chemo rated glove is not going to be an appropriate substitute, for example. The other question we asked was, what other teams in the hospital might be using the same PPE? We looked to our supply chain team 
pharmacy supply chain team to help us navigate some of those rough waters, who are the other teams that are also navigating these tough waters? We leaned pretty heavily on our periop supply chain because there's a lot of similarities in um, the periop world as well as the serial compounding world. Um, so identified some, some real key stakeholders in that arena. So we looked at our Excel spreadsheet of utilization and we looked at the characteristics and the components of each of the pieces of PPE and identified several opportunities to standardize and conserve PPE across our enterprise. We also continued to do observations because we felt like we didn't want to drift. <laughs> uh, we needed to ensure that tight control of our PPE and really that it was in alignment with, with what we had previously had established. So some of our biggest opportunities that we found, batching the work. So we identified several teams that were entering the space to complete various sterile preps. Who's already in that space that we can train up to do those tasks? so that we can conserve one whole round of PPE, for example, each time. And then our other big area of opportunity was our training environment. So similar to Angela, thinking about training differently, thinking about, okay, how can, how can I teach how to put sterile gloves on in the least amount of sterile gloves possible? <laughs> Video, we leaned on that quite a bit, actually. And also thinking about simulation. How can we simulate the live environment and have the learner walk alongside us as we're going through our simulated anteroom, our simulated buffer space and, and knowing what to do where before they get into that live environment, whether we're using actual PPE. So with this work, we were able to consistently conserve PPE and, and kind of make it through the rough of the storm, but definitely an interesting way to think about how we conserve and how we use our PPE. Thanks, Joanna. There was unanimous agreement that some form of PPE has been impacted, not only maybe recently, but even pre-pandemic and in these periods of time. I really appreciate that you emphasize the importance of observations. Uh, a lot of times we'll be on those reports for data, but that go to Gemba, there really is value in seeing what is being done and where are those opportunities to streamline uh, and that staff may not quickly elevate or identify as a savings opportunity. So um, hopefully our listeners can take some of these strategies back. I hope we have seen the worst of the storm, but we'll be prepared if another one hits. All right, let's go on to our third speaker is Kevin Hansen, who is a Cone Health Assistance Director in North Carolina. And his compounding conundrum is related to ongoing drug shortages across the nation, largely impacting sterile injectable medications. Now, on a side note, I think there was a recent survey through ASHP that 99.7% of respondents said that they were impacted recently by sterile injectable medication. So this is very timely. And hospitals are still faced with this challenge of having to compound many, quote, new medications that were previously available as premixed items. So Kevin, what challenges has this brought for safe and effective compounding? And what should our colleagues be cognizant of if they are facing this conundrum? Thank you so much, Christina. And I think it's a good segue from Joanna and talking about material-related shortages. And we know that sterile injectable medications are also subject to being on shortage. And we've seen that over at least the past couple of decades here. And through the pandemic has certainly been a challenge. So one of this, we'll, we'll choose a specific example here to kind of talk through this conundrum is with regards to a, an FDA conventionally manufactured premix of heparin. So everyone who's a lot of listening to the podcast and a hospital or health system setting is like, yep, we're compounding there right now. We can't get it. We don't know when we're going to get it again. 
So we're all in that same boat. This is the 25,000 units and 250 mLs of fluid to a concentration of 100 units per mil. So like most, our organization is, is also preparing those. And I do what I do. I start my morning, of course, with my coffee, but I also read my ASHP Connect posts, plug for that. And I saw this interesting piece that came through is that there was some reports of, hey, has anyone noticed that the compounded heparin is requiring higher rates to be equally efficacious as the previous premix? And it actually got some hits. And other folks were like, yeah, we're seeing the same thing. And even outside of Connect with the MSOS Society through ISMP, we were seeing posts of folks pointing out this conundrum as well as that they were requiring higher rates. And so it got me kind of scratching my head because we have not seen that effect within our organization. We did some analyses. We talked to our providers. We looked at the data and our rates were uh, very similar to what they were using the FDA conventionally manufactured premix. So what's going on? Why are some institutions having issues and why are other institutions not having issues? And so it brought me to this conundrum of our lovely friend, the old 10% rule for compounding continuous infusions. So if you guys remember this, guys and gals, this is where if your volume of drug that you need to add to a continuous infusion bag, right, it's not for intermittent, usually just for continuous exceeds 10% of that total volume of that bag, you need to first remove that equivalent volume from the bag prior to adding your drug volume such to account for that final concentration would be within an acceptable tolerance of how you have it labeled, right? So in this case, we want to get to hundred units per mil. So I'm going to do some quick math with y'all to show you why that this is flawed. And the way that it's flawed is because it does not take into account that manufacturers of premixed bags, fluid bags have overfill in them. So in the bags that we have within our organization, a 250 ml bag, even though it is labeled as that, actually contains between 265 mLs on the low end up to 285 mLs on the high end. And this can vary from um, each lot that that manufacturer provides. So in this case, we're using heparin as our stock unit of 5,000 units per mil. So we need to add our five mLs to a bag. Well, 10% rule says you don't need to account for that volume. So what happens when you do that? So if we take that five mLs, add it right to a bag, and let's assume it's on the low end of 265 mLs, and now it's 270 because of your five mLs of heparin, your concentration is now 92.6 units per mil. Well, some would argue, well, Kevin, your congratulations, you're within your plus or minus 10%. You're fine, right? Well, when you have these narrow therapeutic drugs, right, is that percent difference, is that clinically meaningful? Perhaps. Well, like I said, that was on the low end. So let's go to the high end of the 285, adding your five mLs, you now have 290. You divide your 25,000 units um, in that volume. That is now 86.2 units per mil. No bueno, right? Or outside of that acceptable acceptable range. So it really gets into not only recognizing what the 10% rule for continuous infusions is telling you, but how do you apply that information so you have accurate and safe compounding? So within our organization, we actually do tests to see for these lots, what is that overfill volume in that bag? And then how do we account for that? So if we're removing fluid from that bag, do we also remove that exact amount of that overfill so we can create a true total volume preparation that's within an acceptable amount? Um, so that's one approach. Another approach is, of course, you could use an empty bag and add the exact total amounts of your fluids and your drug 
probably not the most efficient method, but it is an accurate method. Another method you could do is actually adding additional drug into the bag, right? For a continuous infusion, the total amount of drug in the bag is not as important as the final concentration, right? So you could compensate for that overfill by adding slightly more drug. And there's pros and cons to each of these methods that we're talking about here. It also brings out and highlights the importance of using gravimetrics to ensure that we're having accurate amounts of medications being added to high alert medications like a heparin infusion. And again, because we have accounted for that, we have not seen the clinical changes that other organizations have had. Likely, my my thoughts is likely due to this overfill effect. So I'm going to end with a rhetoric question to the audience to ponder in silence on, is it time to retire this ancient 10% rule for continuous infusions? Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. That is a nice way to end your conundrum and perhaps in our next segments of compounding conundrums, someone else may address that topic and provide some reflection. A very timely topic and thank you for giving us that piece to reflect on. All right, I will be your final speaker for this episode. Uh, My name is Christina Martin. I am currently the section chief of our intravenous admixture unit at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center. And my conundrum is around automation, specifically carousel automation in classified spaces. So many of us, and perhaps you, have increased the use of automation and technologies in your clean room and classified space settings. So to level set, for those who may not, you may say, well, why would you consider carousel automation in your classified spaces? We're most familiar with these in our non-classified settings, so our main pharmacies, and they're great for that vertical storage of inventory. If you have limited space, which pharmacies traditionally do, it's a great way to maximize your inventory while also staying within a physical footprint. It also allows you to leverage technology so that you have that real-time inventory management and then also to store larger items. So why would we want to consider carousel automation in classified spaces? For a similar reason, uh, depending on the footprint, if you are designing or renovating your space, you may be looking to maximize the inventory you have. So back to some of our previous topics, if we're now compounding new medications because of uh, growing sterile injectable medication shortages, you may need more physical space to store your inventory. So something like a carousel provides you that vertical storage and being able to complete the rest of your activities. So you may be pausing and saying, okay, so what do the regulations say about having automation in your classified spaces? And there's not specific verbiage yet. Uh, We recognize that these chapters are reviewed and updated on regular frequencies. There's not specifications about automation in your classified spaces, but we do have to adhere to the other requirements within those chapters. So making sure that training occurs on specified basis, that it's consistent, that we're cleaning, depending where these carousels are stored, that we're cleaning at those appropriate intervals, we're maintaining the integrity of the classified space and that we're remediating if there's any downtime. And I'm looking at my colleagues on the call, and I'm sure we have all experienced at least one downtime with a carousel outside of our classified spaces. And it's a little more impactful when it's in your clean room environment. So uh, the next piece, how do you approach a decision if you want to add this carousel automation in your classified spaces? So I've been in my role here a little bit over a year. And so the planning for this occurred long before my arrival, but I was actually kind of excited to inherit this compounding conundrum and learn more about what are those factors that one should consider if they are putting automation or carousel automation within your classified areas. 
I think the very first piece and what our team did a few years ago is do a thorough risk analysis, and this occurred pre-construction. So whether you're building a new space, if you have that opportunity, or if you're renovating an existing space, you know, having that thorough analysis, what are those pros and cons, what are the risks of adding it to the space, what are the benefits? And that was something that our interdisciplinary team, including our construction people, were involved with as they were as they made the decision to put carousels within the classified spaces. So now here we are. I assume my responsibilities with this conundrum as construction started, and we're in a very different landscape with with where we're at within the pandemic, with the types of medications that we are storing and that we're compounding, and how that may impact with our operation. So I think another lesson learned in this conundrum is we recognize that designs and builds and going operational does take time. So you may plan for something and those plans may change. And so again, bringing an interdisciplinary team to the table to assess, we made this decision with this information at one time, does this still make sense with the, with where the type of work that we are doing and the space that we are conducting that work. Where we are today, our construction is nearing completion. Our carousels have been installed in these spaces, but we're now using another tool, failure modes and effect analysis with our uh, quality and safety team to identify what are those risks that we may have with these carousels installed in the spaces. Again, it's another opportunity to identify the risk point that we know from carousel use outside of our classified spaces, but then also new failure modes that may occur because we are using operations within our clean room environment. Another piece learned from this is also really just engaging your peers. If this is something you're interested in, and it is kind of innovative, we see more colleagues who are implementing carousels in their clean rooms to really reach out to those. And I will give a shout out to my colleague, Kevin, here. When I first inherited this conundrum and I said, I don't know anyone who uses a carousel in a clean room, I posed the question on ASHP Connect, and sure enough, my colleague on our SAG has one. And so it was an opportunity, one, to learn what they had done. They could reflect on what were the wins? What were the challenges? If you were to redesign this again, what would you have done differently? And then I learned too from Kevin questions that I could ask since I was newer to this conundrum. I was picking up the project sort of mid to latter stream and to ask our construction team, our engineers, had these things been accounted for in the design and the build? So I think there's a big piece, again, leveraging, harnessing the knowledge from our peers, but and then going back to those experts. So facility design, engineering controls, maintaining the integrity of the space. I went back to um, our construction team, our design team, to ensure that some of those controls that are spelled, that some of them are spelled out in the USP chapters, that they were considered in the design. And then, too, that our workflow then made sense with all of these pieces in place. So my conundrum is a bit different in that uh, where my colleagues have perhaps put into place a change, an innovative change that has worked. My conundrum is still ongoing, and perhaps I will have some lessons learned to share in future episodes, but the conundrum being that you can really leverage your peers to learn what they have done, um, that perhaps midstream, your original plans may change. At this point in time in our discussions, our carousel automation was tagged for classified spaces, but we may be choosing to reclassify those spaces, and that will impact our cleaning, our maintaining the space, and the, our training and how our staff use the automation in those spaces. But it is a great way, one, with the safety pieces we know from automation and technology, also from a physical space savings piece, and then also to be innovative and share those innovations with others. So that is all the time we have today. This has been really great. I want to thank my ASHP side colleagues. We are Team Jack, Joanna, Angela, Christina, and Kevin 
for reflecting on compounding conundrums and sharing them all with you. We have other members as part of our SAG, and they review and support the sterile, non-sterile, and aseptic compounding resources for pharmacists and pharmacy technicians at all levels. So I encourage you to check out the link that's in the show notes. It'll guide you to the compounding resources page on ASHP.org and is one of the many informational ASHP resource centers. We wish you well in identifying, investigating, and remediating your compounding conundrums. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.